Welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. As a reminder, if you have not subscribed to the Randy Fine YouTube channel, please do. Uh, if you have, thank you very much. I appreciate that. We're trying to grow this channel and... Um, I hope you like the videos that I put out, especially what the one today. So if you do, please give me a thumbs up and I'd love to hear your comments. Today we have with us Dr. Fred Moss. Dr. Fred Moss is a renowned mental health advocate, keynote speaker and psychiatrist with a passion for helping people find their authentic selves. As the founder of the Welcome to Humanity movement and the True Voice Mastermind, Dr. Fred's work is centered on the power of communication to heal and connect people. He is the author of Creative Eight, which we're going to talk about, Healing Through Creativity and Self-Expression, and Find Your True Voice, and has written numerous articles for psychology today. Um, Dr. Fred's most recent work includes the True Voice course, which helps people rediscover their voice and share their message with the world and Healing the Healer, a virtual course and mastermind designed to support transitioning healers. Uh, welcome, Dr. Moss. It's great to have you. Thanks, Randy. It's really, really beautiful to be here. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to our conversation. Me too. Cool. It's really important. Um, so as I was saying, oh, that little ghost is, as I was saying before we um, got on the air on the recording is my expertise is in narcissistic abuse and I work with this almost exclusively so the there are things that happen to our minds when we are exposed to constant uh, brainwashing conditioning um, repetitive behaviors control manipulation all of those kind of things gaslighting and so the question that we're going to talk about today to start with is how do I know if I'm mentally ill? So I'm going to ask you, how do we know if we're mentally ill and what mental illness is? Well, I was, uh, you know, given some preparation for this very, very challenging question uh, just a few minutes ago. So I've been able to kick it around for a few minutes on how I might answer it. I hope that the answer suffices. So here's my thinking on this. You know, mental illness in and of itself is a simple conversation, actually. And being imbalanced or being dysfunctional or being uncomfortable or being miserable or in emotional pain is different than mental illness. So the idea of what is mental illness has to be based on the notion of what is it to be mentally healthy or mentally normal. So mental illness suggests an abnormality, like you're outside the range of the regular human experience. And there's a real challenge in the um, in the linguistics of considering what is mental illness, what is mental illness as a whole, what is mental illness in particular, what is mental illness when faced with the chronicity of the issues that you were just talking about, you know, in the face of being in a relationship where manipulation and gaslighting and, um, you know, disempowering uh, um, 
interactions abound? What is, you know, what, when does that become something that can be classified as a mental illness? I think I have a rather unique approach to what mental illness is, which is that it's a conversation. And the, what, what I mean by that in my observation, when you have a broken arm, like when you have a, it's a, it's a broken arm wherever you go. It's a broken arm in Singapore. It's a broken arm in Tibet. It's a broken arm in, in Auckland or Little Rock or Calgary. It's a broken arm. That's not true in the world of mental health and mental illness. The illness itself is variable and nebulous on the edges as to when someone is actually so-called sick. And it's based on the notion that at least culturally or in many different um, you know, de- uh, circumstances, mental illness is a fluid notion. Now, can you be highly mentally uncomfortable? Can you be psychologically sort of um, off kilter or imbalanced? Most definitely. And in no way am I decreasing or diminishing the effects of what it is to be on the backside of those experiences. I don't mean, you know, some people might be hearing this like it's all in your head or, you know, get over it. And that's not at all what I'm saying. The experience is very real. Whether or not it's classified as a mental illness is what we're pointing to here. And I would, you know, because that's the question that you asked. And is it classified as, as significant mental pain and anguish and, and suffering and misery? Most definitely. Is that an illness? That's when we start having a question. Does it deserve to be assessed and addressed? Absolutely. And again, what's the best way to do that? You've already addressed that in my introduction. It's in the world of human connection. It's in the world of communication, conversation, creativity, and then ultimately human connection that creates healing of all conditions of all types everywhere, including whatever it has been that got developed as a recipient of being on the back end of a uh, toxic narcissist, for instance, in your case. So that's what I have to say, at least initially to the question. I hope that came out right. That's good. It's a good answer. So traditionally, or widespread, uh, the DSM-5 is where these diagnoses come from. Um, I know there's a lot of flexibility in those things. But something like depression or anxiety, if they're long-term, not just sporadic or temporary, do are they classified as um, mental illness or mental conditions or however you want to say that? Well, certainly, if you're going to use the DSM as your uh, central publication for classifying what is mental illness, then most definitely in that book, they would be classified as a condition. What I am suggesting is that there is a there is an aspect to this in typically typically there is of a volitional quality, a capacity to take the same data in life and metabolize it such that it does not necessarily result in a sense of chronic ongoing depression or anxiety or confusion or uh, dysfunction or, you know, um, like inability to complete tasks or disinterest in being in social environments or, um, you know, these type of things. 
Like there's an, we have some degree of sovereignty and agency in making what happens in our life. So, and we can use the same data as it comes down to, as it, as it gets experienced to have different um, subjective experiences, subjective experiences of life that don't necessarily respond as the disempowering implications of having a DSM diagnosis. When you look at how the DSM got created and who is at the helm of it, you can see that it isn't as biblical as it tends as it tends to call itself. It isn't as central to what it really takes to be uh, mentally ill. If you read the DSM, you'll see that you have most every condition in there ultimately, and yeah. that you as a human share that with not just you, of course, Randy, this isn't pointing right. to you. I, I have, you know, I have it too. And we all have it because it's vague and nebulous on the edges. And it tends to stereotypically point to specific conditions as being out of the realm of normal without adequately defining what normal is. So there's a lot of audacity here when considering what abnormal is, when in fact abnormal really implies not normal. And we do not have an adequate definition anywhere of what it is to be a normal human being other than to experience life as it comes down to pike, which all of us are doing. Interesting. I like what you said. So, Thank you. so what we really, um, we don't really want to get into the labels of it really is, is I think what you're saying, we don't want to label this as it's this or it's that, because a lot of this is part of the human condition. Right? Exactly. Yes. Okay. And you're in a you're in an interesting field here because you know as a cluster B personality disorder, um, narcissistic personality disorder, it gets emanates from the DSM ultimately. I believe that the first time it was spoken, it was in DSM two, and um, you know so you're speaking towards the essence of a what is originally qualified. If you go back to the mythology, narcissism goes back long before um, the DSM. But when we're talking about narcissistic injury, we're li I'm sure you're generally referring to, at least at least in no small part, to the definition that's implied in the cluster B personality disorder section. Correct. Exactly. And I'm working with those who are exposed to these people now and of course i realize i do realize that there's no cluster b disorder that exists um, alone you know that there's a little bit of flow between you know all the cluster, cluster b disorders but yeah um but there's some very specific uh traits and and, and tactics used by people with NPD. So that's kind of what I'm talking about. But I don't want to focus the whole show on narcissism because I just kind of wanted to touch upon that because I think that's a question that we all ask. But would you consider NPD a mental illness? Mm -hmm. It's the same. I have the same answer. If we can apply the same thing here, um, you know, the whole idea of personality disorder suggests the possibility of having a personality that's not disordered. And I don't know anybody who has a personality that's not, I've never met a soul that, uh, that has a personality that's not disordered. And so, you know, we, we have, again, it takes a fair amount of hubris 
a fair amount of audacity to try to suggest that people like that over there have an illness because I don't have that illness and I can already see that they cause a great deal of chaos or pain or discomfort in others. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of mm -hmm. that, I'm going to call them mentally ill. <coughs> there's, some, there's some degree of, of, you know, really mm -hmm. maybe un, um, unworthy or undeserving freedom that comes into that uh, capacity to make a diagnosis of another. So I certainly am not here to argue whether or not narcissistic personality disorder is a mental illness, but the whole idea of mental illness is on the, is, is on the table right now. The idea that mental illness is a variable conversation of an aspect of being a human that the people who think they don't have mental illness feel comfortable pointing at those people and calling them mentally ill. And in many cases, people feel very comfortable taking on their diagnosis too, because uh, it resolves in many ways, it um, relinquishes, it helps to relinquish responsibility for uh, behaviors and thought patterns um, in one's life that we're not proud of. So if you can say, that's not me, that's my ADD, that's not me, that's my uh, anxiety disorder, that's not me, that's my narcissistic personality disorder. Sorry, I was born with narcissistic personality disorder, and that's why I act the way I do. Mm -hmm. um, then that does simply serve to assist me in relinquishing responsibility for the parts of my life that I'm mishandling. Okay. One thing, one comment that I often hear is, um, <coughs> sorry, people who, um, are coming to me because they have suffered abuse in this kind of relationship. They often say, well, if the narcissist is considered a mental illness or a mental disorder, shouldn't I feel sorry for that person? This is one of the things that one question that I get a lot. I always say no, hmm. because mental illness, there's a spectrum. It could be as much as, you know, insomnia and it could be all the way to schizophrenia and beyond so um i think we have to you know really consider and the other thing about this is that what's most important is that the person take care of themselves rather than focusing on whether they should feel sorry for the person who is subjecting them to this kind of behavior um so that's kind of um a thought there so how does someone know, <laughs> and I guess this is a, uh, an unnecessary question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, how do they know if they are mentally ill? Because you're saying that you don't believe there's really such a thing. There's not, there isn't such a thing because it changes definition in different cultures. And if something changes definition, it doesn't have a definition. If something has an, a variable alternative definition, then it simply isn't a definition and it doesn't really exist. An arm is an arm, again, whether we're, and a broken arm is a broken arm, no matter where or who we're with. Uh, in the world of uh, mental illness, it, to call it an illness makes it not a thing. Now, again, let me just make it very clear. I am not in any way diminishing the experience that one has as a function of what often gets called an illness. So this is not to say just because I'm not classifying it as an illness that I, in some ways I'm saying you don't have a you don't have discomfort or you're not having pain. 
it's a very, very real experience to have all the pain that one has. And that's mm -hmm. not in any way meant to diminish or, or, you know, or to, um, uh, you know, like uh, minimize that experience in any way. That's not my intention here. The idea is to classify it as illness is when we have our issues. And I think that's why we can say that maybe it's not necessary to feel sorry for that person because in fact, they do have some sovereignty or agency as to how they might actually interact with you. Yes. And I'm giving them that capacity to do that. And therefore being sorry for them, if they were, if it was really a puppet on a string, if it was really just a condition that they had acquired as birth, you know, like someone who's born without a limb or someone who's born with a, you know, a backwards ear or something, um, then, then feeling sorry is an option. And by the way, feeling sorry is always an option. That's your agency. So, you know, should you or not should you feel sorry for this person isn't really an important question either. If you feel sorry for them, then feel sorry for them. And if you don't, then don't. But that becomes agency of your own, whether or not to feel sorry for someone. Feeling sorry for someone is an inside job. You know, what are you sorry about? You're sorry about the pain that they're struggling with. You're sorry about them living a life of so much despair. You're sorry about the fact that they can't create useful and competent relationships. That's something to feel sorry for if you want. You know, as a human to human, the idea that this person causes pain everywhere they go in all their intimate relationships and has no real future remote capacity to actually create a relationship that's worthwhile is worth it's it's worth considering feeling sorry for that person like they're not going to have a life that works mm -hmm. and they're one of my human you know siblings and they're not going to have a life that works but that's up to me that's my sovereignty and my agency my capacity to choose how i feel about certain things and then respond accordingly and i think that that's what the question is here um you know, and is there really, is there agency and sovereignty? If there is there volition? It, and the answer in this case, I think that we're implying is no matter what happened in your life to create who you are right now, what you do next is really up to you. And there are thousands of choices of how to interact with the person you're with or what to do with your life in the next minute that have nothing to do with the past that led up until now. Mm -hmm. You have a capacity mm -hmm. to do whatever you want to do in like, I have thousands of choices of what to say or how to respond to you at this very moment, literally thousands. And I'm choosing what I'm choosing. And so are they and so are you and so is everyone. And I like mm -hmm. to live with that notion that the next step is always independent from the past that led us to where we are. Mm. Well said. Well said. Choice, <laughs> it's important for people to understand that they do always have choices. We never just hit a wall. There's always options and choices. And, um, <clears throat> and when, you know, when people feel like there's nowhere else to go and they begin to feel hopeless, um, that's, you know, that's, that's, un that's, that's, that's unfortunate that somebody would feel like that because things are always moving and changing. But I like the way that you um, refer to this. And I think when people ask me this question, what they're saying is, do I give <laughs> this person who has been extremely abusive to me, do I give them a pass because something's wrong with them? And I say, no, 
<laughs> um, I don't give anybody a pass for their bad behavior. I don't care who they are, you know. So that's kind of um, the bottom line here. Um, <clears throat> so when did you start to kind of form this way of thinking where you decided that labels are not really going to be helpful to mm -hmm. anyone. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, it's hard to say when it actually started. It may have started even long before that I went to medical school. I, um, you know, I uh, grew up in a home. I was born to a home in chaos and disarray. My, I had two older brothers, 10 and 14 years older than me, and a pair of parents who there was like a lot of infighting is what I'm told. And I was brought in to bring joy and connection to that particular family. And apparently I did a pretty good job for the first few years. I'm not sure my brothers would agree that I'm doing a good job right now, but that's a question for another podcast. Um, the idea is, is that over time, I really grew up, you know, I befriended the underdog all the way through school, all the way through elementary school, all the people who were maybe, um, you know, already somewhat disengaged or disenfranchised, these became people that were really interesting to me. Along with everyone, I really found this to be a group that deserved my attention. I wanted to know more about them. I wanted to understand, you know, how did they get to be someone who's on the fringes rather than someone in the mainstream. And I um, began to be sort of a, um, an advocate for the underdog, you know, and so uh, I think at that time I was, you know, when people had what were, when they were given like special ed or something like that as a label, I, I just rejected the whole notion that there was anything wrong or different about those people. They were more, if anything, more interesting than, than the general public. And so when I went, when I dropped out of college a couple, the second time, I eventually got a job as a mental health worker at a state uh, mental health facility for adolescents. And there, I really got to see these so-called kids seven years younger than me um, for who they were, which was just living a life and trying to put one foot in front of the other, just like me. And communication and connection was at the heart of that healing. And again, I found myself rejecting labels and diagnoses. Now, I eventually went into psychiatry because I hated psychiatry. I hated how it was developing, and I thought that I could go in and bring connection to the center. Um, and be sort of, I knew that I would be a different kind of psychiatrist even when I went in. And so that part of that was the idea that I didn't want to, um, you know, sort of stratify different people into different sections based on someone's notion that they are less than another. And I thought that I could be an advocate for the under, uh, for the under, under, we'll say it, um, uh, um, underdog, what? whatever. Yeah, underdog. Yeah. And so I did whatever I could along those lines. But as I was in medical school and residency, that's when diagnoses and biological psychiatry got its roots. And, um, you know, Prozac came and biological psychiatry and chemical imbalance became a big deal. The DSM three was developed by some of my friends and some of my colleagues, actually. Um, who were there at the University of Illinois with me. And, um, you know, we just, uh, I, 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 I continued to reject it uh, in my heart, but became someone who had sunken costs and became a, you know, a pretty renowned diagnostician 
and even um, a pretty active psychopharmacologist just because I had taken on a job that had now been typecast to do those two things. Ultimately, I really began to see that, you know, in 2006, I may, I had had enough of the duplicity of living a life along those lines and began to take some people off of medicine as a way of seeing how they would do because doctors were never trained how to do that. So not only did they get better, they got reliably better. In many cases, the thing they called their diagnosis just disappeared entirely as a function of taking away their medicine. And I really began to realize that it's not the medicines that are causing the problem. It's the choice to take medicine. And the choice to take medicine is driven by the idea that someone thinks there's something wrong with them that needs to be fixed. So that when I started seeing that where the real power comes here in the whole system is that someone enters a psychiatrist's office saying what's wrong with me and wanting them to pick up some diagnosis. And once they get that something's wrong with them, they're eager to start putting something into their body to alleviate or to relieve themselves of that wrongness of the, you know, of the dysfunction of the, um, <coughs> of the uh, psychological um, uh, condition that they think they have, the, in, the mental illness. And I began to see that if I, you know, if I told people that maybe there's nothing wrong with you, there would, it, this is the only subspecialty in all of medicine that if you tell somebody there's something, there's nothing wrong with them, they get furious. <laughs> like there's no other field in, in medicine. If you go to an oncologist or a cardiologist, an ophthalmologist, and they tell you there's nothing wrong with you, you're like happy about it. In a psychiatrist's office, if you go and they tell you there's nothing wrong with you, they just go next door and find a psychiatrist who will confirm that there's something wrong with them. And, um, you know, I uh, really start, started to see that that interface between needing to have someone tell you there's something wrong with you and actually hearing that you might be just living this psychological component of what it means to be in directly and in the middle of a human condition um, is a is a difficult and important conversation to have out loud. And over the next 10 years, that's when Welcome to Humanity eventually got developed. In those 10 years, I traveled around the United States and traveled around the world, continued to explore what psychiatry was, and began to really realize that most of the conditions that we call conditions are just simply um, subsets of the general human condition that each and every one of us are experiencing and there is like i said a, ver a version of if i take on a diagnosis i'm allowed to relinquish responsibility for my life again not blaming this isn't about blaming the, the experience is very real gotcha. um you know, but uh and there's also this notion that the diagnoser gets a PowerPoint as well, because if I can point to you and say, there's something wrong with you, it does imply that there's less wrong with me than there is with you. Cause I'm the diagnostician after all. And I'm the one who's making that um, opinion that there's something wrong with you because I have been trained to do so. So there's all sorts of secondary gains that could make in the, in this diagnostic sequence that we've developed. And um, the undoctor got formed. A friend of mine gave me that, um, that um you know that notion like gave me, gave me that uh moniker and basically what it is is i undiagnose unmedicate and undoctrinate people give people the idea 
that maybe there's nothing wrong with them in the first place, even if they're having a highly uncomfortable, highly undesirable experience in life. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. I think Krishnamurthy said it best when he said, it is no sign of mental health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. That's good. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. Yeah. So are you, are you anti-medication? I wouldn't say that I'm anti-medication, but I would say that I don't, I don't ever start someone on medication. Very rarely do I, th I, and now I just recently took a job at a clinic. I have a new job. That's very, very cool. And the clinic did their full vetting of me. They know exactly who I am. They've seen me on podcasts. They know what I've written. They know what I say. They know what I um, stand for. And they hired me anyways, which is very interesting. There's not been a clinic that actually has agreed to hire me as someone who doesn't want to diagnose and doesn't want to medicate. So the idea is that I, as, the, as I orient into this new job, I'm going to realize that there are some people who are going to ask me to get started on medicine, and I'd probably be uh, forced to do that, at least have my hand pushed in that direction. So in other words, if I worked at Whole Foods, um, and you went in there and bought a 12 pack of Coke, and I was like at the, uh, at the cashier section, and as you walk by me, I see your Coke and I'm like, you shouldn't buy Coke. You shouldn't, you shouldn't buy Coke. You should go get some kombucha or you should go get some, you know, kefir or something. Right. Um, I, that would be a, a good way to get fired from Whole Foods, even though they're <laughs> selling Coke, they're selling Coca-Cola. I see that Coca-Cola is not a good plan, but I can't stop you from buying it. And in this case, psychiatry still remains the generally the lone subspecialty that is seen as a specialist for prescribing <clears throat> of the medications. Now, for someone who's on medicine already, they have their doctor, they have their diagnosis, they have their treatment, they have their uh, prescription, and they feel like it's working. And that includes our listeners today. You should stay on everything you're on. Absolutely. If you found anything in your life that just works, you should continue doing that in all areas of life. If you found something that works, please continue to do that. This isn't about coming off a of medicine if you think the medicine is helping. Mm -hmm. But for the hundreds of millions of people, and there are hundreds of millions who feel undiagnosed or misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed or unheard or untaken care of, um, or not appreciated for who they really are, this does hold. And the idea is, is that maybe there's nothing wrong with you and maybe medicines, although an option, aren't anywhere near the top option to help you recenter yourself. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I can't tell you how many people have come to me telling me I was diagnosed as bipolar, which is a this thing. This is a, this is way too overused, um, and put on medication, and I got worse. Yeah. And. Um, when I ask them what their symptoms are, they don't describe bipolar disorder. So I'm like, okay, you know, let's let's look at it a different way, um, because living or, or being with somebody who is so unpredictable in their behavior and so abusive, and where the goalpost keeps moving, your behavior is going to likewise be as up and down and unpredictable it's just it's just the nature of it so i have to agree in that area um one thing that i've found has um 
helped a lot of people are the SSRIs because, you know, and, and it doesn't sound like you're a big proponent of it, <clears throat> but if you've tried psychotherapy um, and you've tried natural solutions and um, you can take an SSRI and it can take you to, you know, I, I kind of call it, you know, being at ground zero and working from the way up, because I find when people um, are struggling so much, they really cannot grasp the concepts of going beyond it until they level out. So how does somebody level out who is having a really hard time accomplishing what they want to accomplish? Okay, so that's a good question as well. And the original SSRI was Prozac, and Prozac got developed in 1987 while I was in medical school. And the Eli Lilly people just inundated us at that point. So we were on the original group of the sales receivers of that particular uh, drug. And, um, you know, there was a book uh, called Listening to Prozac that was really written um, and, uh, in that same year or a year later. There was talk of putting Prozac into the um, water system of Los Angeles and New York. <laughs> the idea that it was, yeah, it got put in there anyways, mm -hmm. by the way. That's where people put their uh, their Prozac is into the sewage, which then goes into the water system. Wow. Um, so, uh, and then all these drugs, they only last for 12 years and then there's generic. So there's no longer anyone taking Prozac. They all take this thing called fluoxetine, which is, which is created in some third world country without any FDA approval for what's really in that pill. We have no idea what's really in those pills at all anymore. It's not being modulated or regulated. And we call that an SSRI as if that's the same as Prozac. It's not, it's not anything close to Prozac. Prozac looked, you know, it's like calling, you know, white bread and German chocolate cake the same thing because they have a similar amount of wheat in it. And, you know, it's not, it's not the same. It's just not. And, you know, do they work in the first place? Um, they do do something. They do do something to our behavior. And this idea of leveling off, I think I have equated in the past to something that even those, uh, even the uh, makers of that drug talk about, of the SSRIs in particular, mm -hmm. and that is an emotional blunting, which I think you're sort of calling this baseline. How do you level out? So, you know, one of the stories I like to tell is uh, if I had a mosquito bite on my elbow, and I came to you and, and it was just gnarly. It was just like each week it got worse and bigger and kept me up at night. And I came to you and you told me you had a specialist for me to see. I might want to go see him. He's like a mosquito bite elbow specialist. And you take me to the north of the city and I go over there. I knock on his door. He answers with his white coat and his stethoscope over his shoulder, invites me into his office and then you know, asks me to do an exam. Eventually I take off my shirt and I show him my elbow and he's like, oh yeah, this is a mosquito bite for sure. And uh, I could see why it's bothering you. And I'm the best in the world at this. And we're going to do something to help you with this mosquito bite. And it's only going to hurt for a moment, but it's going to work because I cure everyone. Like, okay, let's go. Let's do it. I'm in. And he cuts off my arm at the shoulder. God. Now, the truth is two weeks later, when I come back to see if that mosquito mm. bites there, if I stay myopic mm. enough, I will see that he cured my <laughs> mosquito bite. Okay. <laughs> I have no mosquito bite anymore, mm. I promise. And he's right. He cured it. We, if all we're looking at is that is the elbow and it's, there's no mosquito bite anymore. Well, 
this is a lot of what those medications tend to do, which is the price of taking them is that they blunt out so much other things as well. And we minimize that effect for the for the pleasure of not having a mosquito bite anymore. Mm -hmm. And that might be more of what the SSRI's functionality is, um, and the SNRIs, and even the alternative antidepressants that uh, landed on the heels of those um, that are presently out here. And so, you know, how does someone stabilize or, um, you know, level off after they've had so much hard time? There are so many things that we can do. You know, there is mindfulness, there is nutrition, there is being of service, there's being creative, like we talked about, you know, art, music, dancing, singing, drama, cooking, writing, gardening. There's things to do that can um, restabilize us that are not considered conventional interventions like uh, medicine is. Medicine is somehow given the notion that it's the bottom line, that it's the best of all the, all the possibilities. And frankly, it just isn't. Um, what medicines do do is often like what I, the mosquito bite analogy, or they help people level sort of level off by taking away so much of the noise and the things that it includes that it takes away, uh, can be very costly. So there are things to do. And when, like, when you're of service or when you're being creative or when you're taking care of yourself, watching what you're putting into your body, nutrition, hydration, mindfulness service creativity and others you know movement nature things that we know actually stabilize and bring us back to center that each and every per every person can benefit from the more of those things that they uh pour into their lifelong um um or into their lifestyle so you created the creative eight healing through creativity and self-expression. Um, <clears throat> tell us about what that is. So the creative eight was really when I noticed that when I'm being creative, when I'm doing that kind of sort of work or play, or let's call it more formally, a form of self-expression. Okay. Um, I noticed that my symptoms or my negative experience, my negative vibration experience of life just dissipate and disappear. So while I'm doing art or while I'm doing music or dancing or singing or drama or cooking or writing or gardening, that's the original eight. Um, I notice that I'm a different person. And while that's happening, I no longer have those symptoms. I no longer have that complex. I no have, longer have the syndrome while that's happening. Okay. So I invite people to do a little bit of those things. It's just a minute a day, actually, just to activate those systems. Pick, pick three of them. Maybe today you want to do art, music, and dancing. So you pick up a pencil and do some tracing and you pick up, um, you know, another, the same pencil and you pound it on the table and um, that's your music. And then you do some dancing, um, maybe in the bathroom or the bedroom or with your partner for a minute. And you'll notice that life um, takes on a new flair. The idea being that much of these things that we call mental illness are really in the form of communication breakdowns. Mm -hmm. Our incapacity to self-express and be heard is what we really want, is what we really want to pay attention to. We as humans want nothing less than to be heard for who we are and be appreciated and respected for who we really are. And I think, you know, probably in the interactions with narcissists that you tend to focus on, and please excuse me if I'm not stepping too deep into your specialty here, you see that it's really about the communication lines that they have with other people from which the pathology really emerges. Exactly. 
It is. Yeah. It is the communication. Okay. Um, well, when I work with people who are naturally creative and they are really at the, um, the pinnacle of the suffering from this kind of abuse, they always feel like they're stuck. They're like, Randy, I'm an artist, but I can't, I keep trying to pick up that brush. I keep trying to pick, I just can't. And I go to the canvas and there's nothing because I'm so blocked. Um, I'm so consumed by the pain that I'm suffering from. But you're saying like um, with creativity, it could just be the, a matter of taking a pencil and just doodling or drawing circles yeah. or something like that. So it doesn't have to be <coughs> a full-fledged um, action. Right. Yeah. Doodling is a form of art for certain. And, um, uh, you know, I, the idea of being stuck is also a kind of a choice. You know, I, I get it that it feels like you can't, you know, nothing shows up and therefore you can't write or nothing shows up and therefore you can't draw or nothing shows up and therefore you can't sing. Um, it's not really true that you're stuck. There's no stuckness ultimately. Mm -hmm. The idea is that you could, you know, you, you can feel empty. You can feel like there's nothing, there's nothing in the tank, but it's simply not true that there's nothing in the tank. You're still alive. You're still breathing. You're still about to create something. It even takes some degree of creativity to design a notion that there's no creativity here. Like we're creative all the time, including if we create that there's no creativity. Like that's even a creative act is my point. And um, you, there, you can step in and, I get that sometimes it seems like it's a greater uphill battle than other times. You know, sometimes I just want to pick up my colored pencils and go. I like coloring mandalas, for instance. Mm -hmm. And um, I really enjoy that. I, I did a couple of them last week. It was fabulous. Mm -hmm. It was just completely fabulous. I loved it. It, it and served some very real healing purposes. And um, um, sometimes, you know, I didn't feel like picking up a pencil at all. And I did it anyways. And you know, if I'm in a real funk, I might think I don't want to do that. And I almost want to savor the opportunity. Like I reserve the right to stay miserable and no one's going to change me. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I love to color. I always have. <clears throat> I do virtual. I do a uh, virtual coloring um, every night. That's at the end of my day after working with people. Um, going through this, I sit in front of the sofa, on the sofa, in front of the television, and I virtually color. I just, it's, it's cool. the thing that takes me away. That's great. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm very congested today. <coughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they'll say things to me like, I don't understand, Randy. I was always a very decisive person. Now, I go to the grocery store and I stand in front of the bread and I can't choose. I just cannot choose which bread to get. Um, what is that about? Well, I, I, it's a really interesting question. Um, I appreciate it. And I think what ends up happening is that you've made decisions for other people not being made for yourself for such a long time that mm -hmm. the source of your decision making has been distorted. 
Wow. Like, why do you do what you do? It starts being not for yourself, but for the people or the circumstances around you that you're imagining you're doing things in order to get their approval, in order to change the ways, in order to be, you know, in order to, in order to create some causative response. And when that's the case, you have, uh, in many cases, relinquished your practice of making a decision on your own behalf. And therefore, when it comes to picking, you know, between whole wheat and uh, baguettes, you have no idea what to do at the at the. That's really a great answer. Thank you. You're and welcome. that makes I can completely understand how that could happen, yeah. and why that would be the source of the issue. Um, So let's talk a little bit more about um, how to apply the uh, creative aid. Sure. What is the method of how to do that? So the best way to <laughs> apply it, at least the way the book implies, is to activate yourself as often as you can every day. And I only ask for a minute uh, per action. Um, and just in a minute, you know, if you end up doing five minutes, 10 minutes or an hour, it's okay. You can do more than a minute. But um, it's not simple to, you know, we have busy lives and to stop for a moment and actually draw or to stop for a moment and actually dance or to stop for a moment and actually garden, doing more than you would have done in a typical day. So it's, a, it's going over and above and tapping into those creative outlets. Um, that's the methodology that I imply works. And it, when life was a little bit less busy, which seems like a long time ago, um, there was a capacity to be able to do that. Now it's a little bit, it's, it does seem to be a little more difficult as to what to do with the next minute. In the next minute, should you pick up a colored pencil or should you pick up a harmonica or should you actually get up and dance? Should you turn on some music and dance to that? Or should you write or, you know, should you cook? Um, uh, that's, you know, those are tough decisions, but when you activate those areas, you get access to your sense of self-expression that doesn't come through vocality like me and you are doing now. And with a new sense of self-expression, sometimes it's even more profound than what we can design with our voices. And we start getting a real notion that our self-expression is fairly endless and uh, available through multiple different modalities. And you know, it's so true. And I've, um, I've had clients who come to me and they're miserable in their careers <clears throat> they, it's just not a good fit. Maybe they've chosen the career because um, they thought it would impress their parents who they've never really gotten the unconditional love for. And then they're at, at this point in life where <clears throat> they're functioning because they've been trying to please this person, but it doesn't, it's not them. And people will often say to me, um, so can I really be who I am? Can I just be me? Can I do what I want to do? which, you know, sounds like an odd question, but <clears throat> for people who have always lived for other people, it's not. <clears throat> right. And for those clients who have then gone on and done the creative things that they thought they wanted to do, but thought it was wrong, society wouldn't approve of it, whatever it was, they've become so happy. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do yeah. we have to do we have to do mundane things? 
Well, there's there's a certain degree of mundane things that are required to get through the, the day after all. Um, some small amount of things that, um, you know, just to brush our teeth or to um, clean our clothes or the dishes or whatever. You know, there's some things that seem mundane, take out the garbage. Um, so there's some degree of mundaneness that is uh, required to get through the day. Um, I'm I, trying to speak a little bit to... Um, you know, this idea of being flattened and then finding our way into creativity and having that be a massive breakthrough is what I see more often than not. And people really, again, people find their way to self-expression and start realizing that even coloring or drawing or cooking, you know, something more than toast or ramen noodles, <clears throat> you get an opportunity to actually express yourself when you put a little bit of spice on your food or you put a little bit of extra ketchup on your hamburger whatever you want to do mm -hmm. um that uh allows you to express yourself openly and opens up an entirely new avenue of the uh what it means to be human because what it means to be human is connect to other humans through communication and self-expression and on the back side of that it becomes very important to be able to listen and uh, listening for what's being called for either by the person that you're with or by um, or by the situation that you're in. So, uh, you know, we have learned, like you just mentioned, how to become somebody that we're not in order to protect the person that we are. Again, it's it's nothing less than totally absurd, totally preposterous, totally ludicrous to utilize that type of mechanism. And it doesn't even work. But when you start looking at, yeah, I have learned how to be a fake person. I have learned how to be different than I am in order to protect the person that I am from getting into um, painful situations in order to prevent myself from being ostracized or thrown off the island or disregarded or dismissed. Um, I pretend to be someone I'm not. And I get dismissed anyway, number one. It doesn't even work. It doesn't even work. I mean, I get dismissed as the person I'm not. And so the crack in the cement has gotten larger over time since we developed that as a young child and we've never gone back and repaired it. And can I be my real self starts being the question of my second book, which is the find your true voice book. And you can find that at findyourtruevoicebook.com, And I'll send it to you free without, you know, with just for the shipping and handling, but that's the true voice course and the find your true voice book, which is this idea of Yes, for sure. There's someone there called you that you can rediscover without having to design. You don't need to go make up you. You has already been here the whole time. You mm -hmm. is that three-year-old who was in the playpen. You is the one who was in the elementary school with you. You remember that person. There's no other cell. You know, there's no cells from that person that are still on your body. None of them, zero. But you're still remembering that person. And that includes brain cells, by the way, the remember the memory of that person, the being of that person has existed the whole time and taking incremental steps back to that person becomes available. And when you become more and more aware of who you really are and start to express closer and closer from to that central having never, you know, without the plan to ever actually arrive at 100% you, you start getting really clear that that is pretty compelling and pretty addicting it becomes very much easier to be authentic and honest and genuine with yourself and others. So true. Do you believe in the inner child theory? <clears throat> I, I think constellation work is really cool. I like, uh, 
I like the idea that there, you know, we're all in some ways we all are base children. Uh, I'm not that different than little Freddie who little Freddie, who was born to the, um, you know, born to my brothers and parents. I'm not that different than the little boy who took care of my little sister and, you know, translated for her and the pains and suffering and the traumas that I had as a child and then chose a response in order to tolerate or to prevent it from happening again are with me still and um, absolutely dictate very much how to how how I re might respond to you or how I might respond to anything that reminds me of those experiences so that I don't have to face them square on again. Exactly. Exactly. We do take these maladaptive coping mechanisms and ways yep. to navigate the situation um, into adulthood. And then we wonder why our life isn't working because we're exactly. using our what worked for us as a child, but they don't work for us as an adult or as adults. Right. <laughs> right. They're ancient and obsolete. And in, even in their, even in their first right, they were designed by a, you know, seven-year-old or right. three-year-old. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think that um, people who have, who, who are just angry, everything makes them angry. I think that's their only go-to. They've learned that as a child, that that's what got them through. And so now it's their only go-to. And, um, yeah. You know, but I tell people, you know, you came into this world a perfectly normal, healthy yeah. baby, you know, free of all of this. And um, you are that you are that person, you know, yeah. you're not what has been um, what you've been conditioned to be. You, you are right. that person. So the, the book. Um, <clears throat> um, Find your true voice. Well, the the creative eight that one I got for free on your website, right? I was right, able to right. download can, that. You're right. You can download that, and you and you can download a PDF of Find Your True Voice too, or you can uh, hit up uh, if you go to drfred360.com, um, you'll see the Find Your True Voice book, and that one I'll send you the hard copy, um, you know, in uh, with a little packet, and that one is uh, is just for shipping and handling. Okay, that sounds really good. And um, I know you have a newsletter, which is um, welcome to humanity.net slash blog, right? Right. And you still do one-on-one -on -one mental health coaching. Right. I do transformational restorative <clears throat> coaching one-to-one -one, as well as uh, group coaching and masterminds. Um, and I like doing that work and, you know, that little bit of undoctor work for a little bit of really life optimization for people whose lives are slightly out of kilter. That's great. That's and that, um, and that's through welcome to humanity.net slash mental dash health dot coaching, right? <clears throat> right. You can just find, if you go to welcome to humanity.net, you'll see the website, or if you just want to contact me, you can just email me at drfred uh, at welcome to humanity.net or go to that main site, which is the drfred360.com. Okay. Um, I know that you do, you speak for groups and organizations, conferences. Uh, right. I love so doing You're that. available for that as well. Yep. I love doing that. Love doing keynotes. Are you, when you do the one-on-ones um, or the groups, are you doing them virtually like, you know, through Zoom or whatever? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I had designed long before it was in vogue. I was a uh, um, telehealth advocate, and uh, in fact, taught a course in the um, uh, 2014, 15, and 16. I taught a course called Mastering Telepsychiatry, 
or mastering telehealth. And um, long before it was the gold standard, we didn't have a we didn't have a pandemic that pushed us into all doing this. Quite You're yet. a trailblazer. Yeah, <laughs> I saw it coming. It was easy to see. You're a trailblazer. Yeah, I mean, you you right. Uh, you know, and and I know. Um, you know, when you have these kind of ideas, my son is a, is a surgeon, but I, and I and I raised him very holistically. <clears throat> and I know that while he was going through medical school and through his surgical residency, um, he had to lose a lot of that because you can't um, <clears throat> follow the protocols and do what's expected of you if you're not doing it the way they want you to do it. I know yeah. once you get into your own practice, then you can become <clears throat> more creative that kind of thing. Yeah. But um, did you have, was this a conflict with you? What was the conflict? The conflict when you were that, going through medical school and they're teaching you yeah. methods and uh, yeah, philosophy. Yeah, I, 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 I tended to um, disregard a lot of the conventionality as I was coming through medical school. But known you have to memorize it because you got to pass the boards and all that, right? right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. And I, I did do that. And I had good friends in medical school who knew that I wasn't wasn't buying the whole rhetoric though most of the way through. Well, good. I'm glad that you're I, I'm glad that you are who you are, because um, we need more Thank you. doctors and professionals like you that are out of the that. box thinkers. Thank you so much. I really appreciate mm -hmm. that. Randy. And um, you also, just the last thing, you can also be an expert witness in areas of psychiatry, telepsychiatry, telehealth, correctional health care. Um, and what do you do? Why would people call you for a witness, as a witness? Yeah, so I um, really help uh, people with the things that happen behind closed doors that are sometimes hard to describe or unspeakable. There might have been violence or suicide or homicide or... Um, just uh, mostly medical malpractice is the consideration and either helping doctors uh, who didn't commit medical malpractice or helping the, um, you know, those who are affected by clear mental, uh, clear medical malpractice to deal with, um, deal with the issues as they arise. Okay, great, great. All right. You're a one-stop shop. Yeah, I do. I do do a lot of things. <laughs> Okay. Well, it's so great to meet you. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed talking to you and um, and hearing you know your your philosophies because they make total sense to me. Beautiful. I'm really glad to hear that, Randy. And thank you so much. And I, anything I can do to assist your uh, listeners or yourself, please let me know. I'd be glad to help out. I'd be glad to speak at any kind of event that oh. you might be part of or okay. um, speak to your group. And, uh, you know, if you have a mastermind or a small group that you have uh, meetings with, I'd be glad to be a, a, a contributor at that level. Okay. And there's actually, um, I'm actually forming a company with someone um, where we are going to have experts um, come and deliver uh, video. I would love to do that. Of course. Okay. Well, I yeah. will call you. I will get in touch That's with great. you. That's great. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, Take Randy. Care. Thank you so much. All right. Beautiful All right. conversation. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch 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 -ch
Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.